Coming to you from the Liminal Conference in Ventura, California, it's Ask Science Mike Live. It's another exciting episode of Ask Science Mike, and it's my favorite episode, Ask Science Mike Live, because I don't sound depressed in my office alone. There's actual people here. I've got a lot of events coming up, as you know, so just go to AskScienceMike.com and click on events. I'd love to see you if I'm coming to your town, but for now, we've got a show to do, so let's get it started. So before we answer questions this week, I'd like to do something a little different. I've got friends helping me operate this program, and they're going to introduce themselves right now, so when you hear them talking in the program, you know who they are. Hello, I'm Brian White. And I'm Jim Beaver. And you guys work where? We are on staff here in Ventura at the Ventura Vineyard Church, uh, the host of the Liminal Conference. Awesome. And for my friends who might be in California... I really love this church. Not only were they crazy enough to invite me in, uh, they brought in some of my, my favorite cohorts in the world, uh, including Pete Enns, who you guys hear me talk about all the time. And we actually had some brews in church the other night. So if you're looking for a different church experience, this would be a good place to start. Amen. And with that... Amen. Yeah. And uh, with that, let's do some questions. Throw up hands, and it's really informal. Considering that every year computer technology is getting faster and more powerful, the possibility for there to be advanced artificial intelligence increases, a classic example being IBM Watson. What if artificial intelligence reaches human levels of intelligence? Are they considered people with a soul too? If so, could they believe in God? Oh man, great question. Out the gate. So, a couple of thoughts. One... Uh, This is a really popular idea in computer science today because digital technology allows us to do more computation in less space every year. And if you chart this thing called Moore's Law, you realize over time the number of nodes in a computer begins to approach the number of processing nodes in a human brain. It's very exciting. It's led to all kinds of developments. Uh, Watson is amazing because it won Jeopardy natural language processing. Recently, a machine called DeepMind using a system called AlphaGo won a game called Go, which was considered unwinnable by computers because it's a very intuitive game because there's more possible moves in a game of Go than there are atoms in the universe. So doing the same kind of branch prediction you do to win chess isn't feasible in AlphaGo. And so we wondered what happens when they think like us. Now, in the show notes this week on AskScienceMike.com, I'll include a link to a blog by some folks called Wait But Why, who talk about uh, the good and bad of artificial intelligence. But I want to start by throwing a little cold water on the problem. You may not know this, but as of this year, Intel has given up on Moore's Law. We are no longer seeing the same exponential growth curve in circuitry that we've seen historically. Why? Physics. The components on microchips have gotten so small and so integrated that quantum dynamics has started to come into play. So if you have basically a microscopic wire here and a transistor or a gate and there's another one here, they're so close together that quantum probability will let electrons teleport from trace to trace. And guess what happens? Your math gets all messed up. The other problem is, as the features of the chip get closer together, we have trouble dissipating all the energy, which has let us realize something. Human brains are phenomenal. They're really phenomenal. In fact, we're starting to wonder if it's possible to create the same level of computational density in the amount of space in a human brain at that low an energy footprint. 
Your brain most of the time runs on about 20 watts. And when we try to build computers that are in the you know, computational league of a rat brain, they're multiple floors of very large buildings. <laughs> and they use megawatts of power. But let's assume that engineers are clever. Let's set aside the disclaimer of the technological system. And we have to say, where do you come from? Why are you a you and not a chair? And science today believes that consciousness emerges from a series of feedback loops. And I'm going to explain that really quick. Under that model, uh, the most basic form of consciousness you could have would be a thermostat, like on your wall. So scientists would say your thermostat is basically conscious. Now, I don't know what that means to write to life when you change the batteries, but... uh, (laughs) Your thermostat is aware of what? It builds a model of the world that incorporates the temperature of the room. And when it gets too hot, your thermostat does what? It turns on the air. And what's that do? It lowers the temperature of the room. And then what's the thermostat do? It turns the air back off. It's a feedback loop. It creates changes in a world that it understands. Now, it's very simple, but it does respond to the world and builds a model. Now, if you have something a more sophisticated level of modeling... You might have something like a plant, and a plant knows the temperature and the soil pH and the direction of the sun and how much rainfall there is and whether something might or might not be eating it. And plants can actually send chemical signals to other plants to say, help, I'm being eaten. You should turn your leaves more acidic or bitter. So plants are more conscious than a thermostat. They have more levels of loops that build a more sophisticated model of reality, which is less sophisticated than a beetle who has to not only know what a plant knows, but also know where it is and where predators are and where mates may be and where food may be. So it has what? A brain to build an even more elaborate model. And then past that, you get social animals who not only have to know about their environment, but know what other people think about the environment and what other animals think about them, which is why... Dogs have such big brains and why they're so empathetic. And then past that, you have human brains, which not only model everything everybody else does, but also model space, time. Our brains try to predict the future constantly. What does that have to do with machine intelligence? We understand that these loops create a consciousness. So is it possible to digitize that type of awareness? Well, interestingly enough, Computer scientists mapped the brains of a nematode, a flatworm, with about 300 neurons. And they digitized the relationship between those neurons as basically server nodes. They loaded it into a computer, and they attached that digital representation of a worm brain to a robot. That robot had wheels that simulated the left and right muscle actions of the worm and a sensor on its nose that emulated what a worm's nose would feel and feed the brain. And guess what happened? Without programming this robot, it could navigate space because it was a digital representation of a brain with 300 neurons. This is real. You can see it on YouTube. Here's the problem. That's 300 neurons. Human brains, 86 billion. So the question is, will we ever be able to encapsulate that sort of processing power in digital systems in a way that creates a cascade resonance, a loop, aware of loops, in 80 to 100 milliseconds? I don't know. Could there be other approaches to intelligence that produce sentience? Possibly. But there there would be some interesting phenomena with digital intelligence. Why? If you take that worm brain and hit save, hit copy, you now have two of those worm brains that at that moment were exactly the same, but when this one gets loaded in another robot, learn different things. Cloning becomes an easy thing. Transferring a consciousness from one body to another becomes a thing, and it creates all sort of ethical questions we've never pondered. I personally believe if you created enough loops, enough simulated neurons in a digital system, you would have a self-aware intelligence 
that would be able to, just like us, say, why am I here? But depending on the fundamental structure of that system, it may not have the same relationship to that question that we do. For example, we have a biological drive to feel safe, for our offspring to feel safe, and we have a limbic system, we have an amygdala. If you created a digital brain, what if you made something that had human-level intelligence but wasn't capable of fear or anger? Because it doesn't have this neurochemical mix to produce those feelings. What I believe about digital intelligence is if it ever exists, we will have more in common with ants and snails and daisies than we do with digital brains. It will be a fundamentally different way of viewing and processing reality. So I think it's essential that we are careful and deliberate with AI research uh, because not only are there ethical questions we can't answer yet, there is also the grim possibility that once you make an AI, it gets much, 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 much smarter than us in a matter of hours. I don't necessarily, as a human, want to deal with something that would relate to my intelligence in a similar way I relate to an ant. and might think it's God. <laughs> Thank you for what you do. It's very inspiring. So how would you define spiritual abuse? Ooh. What happens to the brain when one experiences it? And how do we find healing? And how does the church respond then to folks who come in who have experienced spiritual abuse? How would I, Okay, wow. How do I define spiritual abuse? How do we respond to it? How do we recover from it? And how should the church respond to it in the brain? Okay. There's a thing now called spiritual PTSD, where people have had such traumatic experiences in religious environments that they have similar symptoms to people who have uh, lived through violent encounters or been on war zones. We talked this morning about how deeply our need for God extends into the brain. And we talked about how powerful our religious experiences can be in rewiring the brain's operation. That also means we tend to naturally and culturally ascribe serious authority to clergy and faith leaders. I've experienced this some myself when people come to me at events and they say, hey, Mike, I feel like you're my pastor. And I go, whoa, 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 whoa. You, can't, you can't see my hands up in my back air across the stage in Radio Land. But it makes me unsettled because I understand what a force multiplier that is. And there's a disturbing tendency among religious authority figures to create authoritarian structures in religion where ideology and the good of the organization is held in higher esteem than the good of the individuals who make up that organization. And when that happens, funky behaviors happen. So I've known, I've gotten emails from people who have been run out of their church and been disinvited from Thanksgiving dinner because they believe in evolution. That's spiritual abuse. I think when we hold our ideas and agreement on ideas as a test for fellowship in our life, that borders on spiritual abuse. What you believe is more important than what you do. If people are doing harmful behaviors, confront them in love. But if people just believe things and we start to ostracize them and push them out of communities, it creates this state in the brain of escalated stress hormones, of reduced prefrontal activity, because we're a social species. We are the most social species of ape on the planet. Whether you're an evolution person or not, taxonomically we are categorized as apes, and we're by far the most social. In fact, we're the most social mammal, and here's why. 
you take civilization away and you put us in bands of 80 to 150 individuals, little tribes, guess how well a human being does alone in the wild? Not well. Not well. Look at my claws. (laughs) Right? Look at my teeth. Look how fast I can run. It's quite pathetic. I won't demonstrate. (laughs) Our only hope as a species is to stick together. And so we have an existential angst about rejection when we kick people out of churches or use the connection people feel, the good sense of connection religious communities offer as a way to marshal people and control them. Spiritual abuse and religious PTSD are inevitable results. So how do you recover? One, grieve. Everybody wants to have a stiff upper lip. Everybody wants to find the next thing. Everybody wants to be the strongest. And when I left my Southern Baptist church, I went to pieces, and I'm not ashamed to admit it. I'm not ashamed to admit that I had to go to therapy for weeks and weeks and weeks, and that leaving the church where my oldest daughter was baptized and I got married at the altar hurt a lot more than when my parents got divorced. That leaving that church was a death in my life. And so I grieved. And then I took time to heal. We became a brunch family. And I got to say, I never knew you could sleep in two days on the weekend. It's amazing. (laughs) Right? We ate waffles. We made smoothies. Oh, my gosh. And then at some point I realized what? I'm a person that's a Sunday morning Christian. I'm not saying everybody has to be. But for me, my faith just like, It comes alive when I gather with people on a Sunday morning in a building and somebody preaches and there's a liturgy and we take the Eucharist. And so we found a church that could help us heal and grow. So the final step, I think, to recovering from this is actually to re-engage with the church. A lot of people disagree with me. That's okay. It's my show and I have an opinion. (laughs) But here's what you need in your faith community. One... Your faith community must affirm, accept, and celebrate exactly who you are today. In all your beauty and all your warts, your church has to love it. But your church must also challenge you to become who God is making you. And to me, that's the recipe for a healthy church. You notice what I don't list? Ideological agreement. I don't, you know, the color of the carpet, the worship style, the location, the size of the children's ministry. It's really just a two-prong formula. Accepts you as you are, helps you grow to who God is making you. My friend Bob Goff says that our job as followers of Jesus is to help people become love, which I just think is beautiful. And what I have found is that sense of isolation and fear I experienced when I was spiritually homeless went away when week after week after week after week I met with these Methodists who no seriously never called me a heretic. Even if they would say, wow, Mike, what you just said doesn't line up with our teachings at all. Tell us more about that. I'm not issuing a trumpet call for churches to abandon orthodoxy. My church is completely conventional, (laughs) uh, creedal Christianity. But what they say is, it's okay if you're not. Just come on. Just come on. Just come on. So not only do they let my weird self attend church, uh, we have atheists who say, hey, I just like to pray with people. Come on, play in the praise band, right? Can you, what, an atheist in the praise band? Nobody cares because these people are centered and assured in the gospel and in their fellowship of Christ. So 
I think the, the future of the church is not to abandon orthodoxy, but to just kick the, the doors of the church wide open. Just kick them all the way open and stop being terrified that someone's going to come in and like pollute the belief, whatever, I don't get it. Now that's what I'm not talking about is someone, if someone came in and said, listen, uh, I want to join your church and uh, I, th- I think Christianity is dangerous and should be stopped and I'd like to teach a class about it. <laughs> no. We're so glad you're here. You're always welcome. But we're a Christian church. Do you know what I mean? Uh, actually, I've got the phone number for the Tallahassee Atheist Association. I'm sure they meet in a pub. You'd have a really good time. Do you see what I mean? Are you, are you with me? Like the reason we're where we are as a church, I don't know. I, I think Jesus encountered a similar situation. And he knocked a bunch of tables over. And he said, no, my house will be a house of prayer for all. All the nations, all the people. So I just think it's a gospel tradition. And I think there is absolutely a church out there who will understand your need for space as it accepts you as who you are, but will also be so ready to love you as you go through that hurt. And here's the amazing thing. Here's the amazing thing about having been hurt by a church, whether the church meant to do it or not, which by the way, the Baptist church I went to is not a bunch of evil people. It's a bunch of really good people who are confused how one of their deacons started talking about marriage equality and the Big Bang Theory. They were more mystified than I was, right? But having that experience where we both loved each other and it just we just couldn't make it work. Do you know what a new sensitivity I have for people who say the church broke my heart? Do you know that 10 years ago, I told those people they need to read their Bible more? So the last thing in recovering from this hurt is recognizing the way it can transform the way that you love other people. One time you mentioned on the podcast that Eastern religions involve praying visually, whereas in Western religions we're all about praying like with language. Yes. And I had never heard of that until now, so I just would like to know more about that, both neurologically and like how to practically apply it. Thanks. Okay. Uh, Christianity didn't start as a Western religion at all. Uh, I just came back from Israel. I just experienced this firsthand, and it put a, a flesh on an academic knowledge that I had. So in the East in China, in Japan, in the Mideast, contemplation of God was not considered a logical rhetorical activity. It wasn't centered around understanding. It was centered around experience. So words that were used were used as mantras to help you find a different state. And also visualization exercises, visualizing a flame, watching a candle, these sorts of things, were prayer exercises. The idea of like talking to God, like verbally, it wasn't heresy, it had just never been done. Then you get this, this very Mideastern religion, Judaism, that does incorporate spoken prayers to God, but still has this mystical, numinous aspect. Um, and later, you have this weird offshoot of Judaism centered around one rabbi <laughs> who his followers say came back from the dead. And the first people to take up that religion, we understand historically, we're probably Jewish. And then people in those towns. So I was uh, in Galilee, and I was in Bethlehem, and I was in Jerusalem. And you go into these Orthodox churches, and they're set up like the temple. There's a wall, and there's a curtain, just like there was in the temple, only now the curtain has Jesus on it, because he's the way, the truth, and the life. And the altar's on the other side of the curtain. And the spaces are designed for contemplation. And the ritual is designed around a liturgy, a repetition. There's no original, somebody, here's my thoughts on this. (laughs) It's this very Eastern style. So then uh, there's this thing called the Great Schism. Don't know if you've heard of it. It's the first church split. We started early. And effectively, these people in Greek culture, invented this thinking tool called logic. 
And then these other people called the Romans got really excited about it. And the Romans started to use logic to define theology. And the Greeks said, hold on, that's blasphemy. We invented logic and it's not meant to be used to encounter God. And this tension of uh, dogma, which wasn't a slam like we use today, it was a way of knowing, a way of experiencing, versus the kerygma, the logical analysis in the Roman church, was one of the wedges that started the great schism. So then you have someone like me who's come through a tradition that's the most radical possible iteration of that logic to God school of thought because you have the Roman Catholics that then go to Luther and the Protestant Reformation that then goes to these Dutch and German philosophers that makes God increasingly a list of propositions. And then at some point, your propositions don't describe reality enough, don't describe God well enough, and God dies. That's what happened to me. I uh, Protestanted my God to death. (laughs) And... As I've come back to faith, the theology, theologians I've enjoyed the most have actually been orthodox because they speak of a God who is experienced and loved. So I read, there's a, a book called the Philoclea. I'm translating that horribly wrong. So a set of writings from uh, Greek desert fathers in the third to sixth centuries And there was this one line that just knocked me out. It said that I can never know God. To know God is a blasphemy because it's to make God small enough to fit within me. But I can love God and through the love find a knowing. Now my inner atheist goes, hey, that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) And my inner Christian goes, Why not try it? And what I've found today is the prayers that make me feel most connected to God are not verbal in nature. It is a still sitting in God's presence. So if you'd like to try a really simple Orthodox Christian, this is not a new age thing. Uh, People were doing this before there was a Roman Catholic Pope and certainly before we Protestants got started. Uh, If anybody is doing something outside of tradition, it's us. But take a candle, just like a candle, light the candle, and sit in its presence in an otherwise dark room and look into it and have it be the focus of your prayer. Your prayer at first is to realize like the candle, your light is not eternal, and so you contemplate your mortality, but then you imagine that the source of that light is not the candle, The source of the light comes from somewhere else. And so you imagine that light as the warmth and grace of God, and then your mind simply moved toward that light in gratitude. That sounds really weird for most Western Christians until you do it about three times. And you sit alone in a room with a candle, and you feel that presence. And you love that presence. And sometimes I weep. And later when my modernist, skeptical brain goes, well, that was just a neurological response to stillness and light. I go, listen, I love God, and through that love, I found some knowing. And it's not, it's not a knowing you're ever going to understand. And you just talk to yourself, and you seem a little crazy. <laughs> but somehow, it's beautiful. And I wonder, you know, I, I walked up to the Western Wall at the Temple Mount, And as I walk up to the Western Wall, my Western atheist is just like, this is ridiculous. All these people fighting over this irrelevant patch of soil. This is so stupid. And I have like a head covering on, and I feel weird about that, but you have to to be at this holy site. And you reach out and you touch that wall, and all that conditioning from contemplative prayer comes back, and suddenly you just get it. You get how somehow this is a a thin place. Somehow people ascribe the presence of God to this spot and this moment. Or, thank goodness I'd studied contemplative prayer because I sat in Elijah's cave on a Tuesday morning and did a centering prayer around fire, wind, and silence in the room (laughs) where Elijah is believed to have sat and encountered God. 
And I don't care how factual that story is because I'm sitting in this cave and just receiving a grace. And that's the difference. The difference is it's not an intellectual mastery, but a surrender to an acceptance of divine love and grace. So first of all, for all of you in Radio Land, so sorry to all my atheist friends. That was gobbledygook. Just keep listening. We'll do some more science. To my Christian friends, I hope that was helpful. So thank you so much for um, being here with us. Um, My question is about miracles. Ooh, okay. Yeah. How do you scientifically explain miracles? Can you? And how does prayer, you mentioned earlier um, in this conference that prayer does in fact affect the brain. I have here the definition of a miracle. A miracle is an event not explicable by natural or scientific laws. Such an event may be attributed to a supernatural being, magic, a miracle worker, a saint, or religious leader. How do we dive into that? There's a thing that happens on Ask Science Mike where people ask me questions I can't answer but don't want to, so congratulations. (laughs) Everybody just take your seatbelt and just... Miracles were a core of my faith growing up. Uh, It's one of the ways I would refute my skeptical friends. For example, my grandmother, dad's mom, once had lungs full of tumors. And they told us that she had six months to live and that they were going to discontinue treatment. And my super Baptist-friendly family all gathered together and we laid hands on my grandmother and we prayed and we prayed and we went home and we prayed and we did a prayer chain and we prayed and we knew God would deliver her. And my grandmother went back weeks later and there were no tumors in her lungs. And I went, hallelujah, that's a miracle. And later, when my faith was unraveling, and that was one of the stones holding my belief in God to me to keep it from flying away into the wind, I read a book called The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins, a book which at first I thought was super lame and offered no new arguments, and then he started to lay into prayer. And he said there were studies that I looked up in the footnotes and read myself that failed to show any correlation in double-blind trials between people being prayed for and recovery rates. And that, in fact, if you did people who were not being prayed for, people who were being prayed for and didn't know it, and people who were being prayed for and did know it, this group had the lowest recovery rate by a small measure, and scientists thought it might be a performance anxiety. People were afraid to let those praying for them down. And that wrecked me. And so I said, but what about my grandmother? And I had a good atheist friend who happens to be a medical researcher, and he said, guess what? Some cases of cancer go into remission. And so if you prayed for her and she went to remission, you ascribed that to God. We said, I can guarantee you, if you ask around, you have friends who prayed for this healing and it didn't happen, and they have this mystery of unexplained prayer. Oh, and there may be a supernatural. Science can't speak to it. But what science can speak to is anytime something intersects physical reality. So imagine for a moment, we had a team of researchers when Elijah called down the fire of God onto this altar that was soaking wet. They may not be able to isolate the source of those flames, but they could take a thermometer and put it into the wood and say that was just on fire right? When the supernatural intersects with the physical world, it must by necessity leave a trace. And in my research, which is considerable, I have not ever been able to find reliable documentary scientific evidence of a supernatural event, full stop. Notice I put some caveats on there. Reliable Documentary, scientific. To have a scientific belief, you have to have five sigma confidence, 99.9s and a percentage. 
okay? That's the scientific marker of a belief you accept. So then I was like, man, prayer's not real, God's not real. (laughs) And I became a Christian again, but without a belief in miracles and a complicated relationship to the resurrection. Less complicated these days. I channeled into prayer again because I read this stuff about it changing your brain. So maybe prayer's job is to make me more like Christ so that the miracles may come from me and from the church. Maybe the miracles of people are so loving, they transform the world. And then my dad had a stroke. I was sitting in my office working on my book, and I got a call that says, your dad collapsed. You need to come to Orlando right now. I'm driving down. They said, your dad is half paralyzed. And they said, we're not sure he will make it until you arrive. And my mom was in the car, his ex-wife. And for four hours, we prayed. You know what we prayed for? A miracle. (laughs) This thing I do not believe in. I prayed and I wept and I walked into the room and I saw Superman faded, right? Like my dad's like this manly man, this strong guy, and he's just barely there. When he does wake up, he has this splitting migraine and he can't move a muscle on his left side. And they said he may never walk again. And I knew if my dad never walked again, he would end his own life. And so we prayed. He had this massive stroke, massive, massive, massive stroke. He walks, he drives, he works. Miracle? I have no idea. But am I grateful? Yeah. But what I never do is pin God in. Because if I did, and dad didn't recover, then God dies to me again. And this is why I approach God without a posture of mastery. It is not my job and will never be my job to master an understanding of God, but instead to love God and to receive through that love. Anything else, my opinion, ultimately is doomed to failure. Your boxes fall apart and then your God has to die. But God's already been on the cross, and we keep wanting to throw him back up there. But God, what about civil wars? God, what about cancer? And he's, it's already finished. It's already finished. He's already be- And I, as far as I know, God is totally willing to go back on the cross and die over and over again so that we may live. But I've, I've reached a point in my life where my posture is, these are fun things to puzzle. <laughs> um, but if I, if I make God a Rubik's Cube, it's not God anymore. Even if I get green on this side and blue on this side and red on this side, it's not God anymore. That's why I say things like science gives us facts, faith gives us meaning. I don't, I don't answer the miracle question. I wrestle with the miracle question, but I don't, I don't answer it. Matt here with a question about happiness, a multi-layered question. Um, Is there a correlation between how much you know and how happy you are? Is there a propensity for people who are constantly seeking out more information to be less happy? Are people who have no desire to learn more than what they've learned early in life generally more content? Is there a scientific basis for the phrase, ignorance is bliss? Why is being a know-it-all frowned upon by the vast majority? I'm not sure I can remember the question. Uh, I always know like it's on when someone has the cell phone, like it's on. <laughs> by the way, these are fantastic questions. Uh, maybe too fantastic. We might need to get someone qualified to answer them. There is a basis to ignorance is bliss. There is a correlation between depression and intelligence, not information. So 
I have wrestled with darkness in my life, and that darkness comes from an expanded view of reality sometimes. So I can look at uh, conflicts. I can understand both sides. I can see how both sides are reasonable from their own perspective. And I can see how people can justify killing each other, even if I don't agree with it. I can also see how messages will roll across the media and people will, as humans do, respond to social identity. And so sometimes life seems pretty futile and change seems impossible and love seems a fool's errand. It takes you to a dark place. It's nothing to do with information. What I've studied about happiness is it is not related to the consumption of information or not. Now, your prefrontal cortex, right here, agency, consciousness, uh, focus, all, all that stuff, uh, doesn't have feelings. So if you just analyze life all the time, you lose your emotional dynamic range. Your less analytical brain is much more experiential. If you spend all your time trying to list why you love or don't love your spouse, you have a really boring relationship. But if you cuddle, you have a pretty good, interesting relationship. Because it's experiential. It takes both things, right? That applies to all of life. Some of life must be experienced to create an emotional dynamic range, but it's not necessarily all good. That can also take you to dark places to experience more. That's why intellectualization is a defense mechanism. From what I have read, enduring happiness is primarily linked to one cognitive activity, the surrendering of expectation. Today, affluent white men in their middle ages are the most suicide-prone group in the country because they have it all, and it doesn't feel like enough. Or they have a bass boat, and Phil, turn that Phil, he's got a 30-foot ocean liner. And I just got this bass boat, right? Expectation versus reality. His actual life is here, but he hopes for here. So I get out of the bed every morning. What's my expectation? I get to do some work today. I get to read emails from people. What's my five-year plan? I crumpled it up and threw it out. Because <laughs> I did the 10-year plan, the 15-year plan, and I became like a vice president of a major corporation, and I was super unhappy. I make so much less money than I've ever made since I was a teenager now, and I'm thrilled because I get to come here and be with you right? The surrendering of expectation and an acceptance with gratitude of the gift of awareness is scientifically linked to happiness. Guess what? I love information. I've read two books while I was here. I love it, but I don't idolize it. I used to, and I I just take each day as a gift, and I'm really happy. Now, One final point before I paint a false sense of hope. If you suffer from clinical depression, don't hear that I'm saying all you have to do is surrender expectations to be happy, right? Clinical depression is a different thing. It's got neurological origins. I'm talking for what we might call a neurotypical person, which itself is a loaded term. The surrender of expectations helps one find happiness. And that's scientifically everything I've read about happiness. The other thing, ooh, 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 there's a book called The Happiness Hypothesis that's phenomenal. And that not only talks about some of that, but also says that one of the frustrations you face in finding happiness is your inability to control your own behavior. And remember when we built a model brain with our hand? Uh, Basically, he says picture your brain like an elephant and a rider. And most of your brain's the elephant, and then your prefrontal cortex is like, which is just right here, that you view as controlling your life, is sitting on this elephant. And think about it. How do you get an elephant to do what you want an elephant to do? It's not through brute strength. It's not through willpower. It's through training over time. 
So that's another thing, not only surrendering your expectations about external phenomenon, but also understanding that you yourself are not a robot. You're a chaotic electrochemical soup, and the part of you that represents your consciousness is a tiny percentage of your overall brain matter, and you're not actually, you're not only not in control of the world, you're not in control of you. And that realization for me, it means, oh, I figured out, my elephant likes pizza. (laughs) And like, just like getting out the prod and beating the elephant to death doesn't help me. I gotta understand over time, I've just gotta learn how to train that thing to not walk the Pizza Hut so much. (laughs) The research is ongoing, I'll tell you how it works out. (laughs) And Mike, I'm wondering if you can help me understand the science behind what happens in my brain when I wake up. Ooh. So basically, what's happening when I go from unconsciousness to consciousness? How does my brain make that switch? Or better yet, what is it that is switching in the brain? Okay. This is not totally understood. But I'll tell you what I know of what science knows. Again, the part of your brain you primarily associate with your conscious awareness is your prefrontal cortex. Right here and right here. For most, one side of your brain is dominant. For most people, your consciousness is primarily in your left prefrontal cortex. For some people, it's the right. But most people, it's the left. Either way, one side is dominant. When you sleep, that part of your brain gets really, really quiet. The rest of your brain stays active. Now, you dream. What are dreams? Where do dreams come from? Your brain, as you sleep, the sanitation crew comes out. And it cleans all the hallways, and it takes out the trash, and uh, the maintenance people come out, and if there's any lights that don't work anymore, they change the bulbs. We're using an analogy that's getting increasingly less accurate. But basically, when you sleep, uh, strengthened neural connections get stronger, and weakened ones get weaker. That's how your brain wires. And this happens through a random firing throughout your brain. And that happens a lot when you have rapid eye movement sleep. Random activity happens in the brain, but things that you've invested more neurological energy in come up more often. So you, if you're married, you have a lot of neurons that know your wife or your husband or your partner. If you have uh, children, you have a lot of neurons with your children. You have a lot of neurons with your work. So these are really common settings and dreams. Why? Because if you roll dice, a lot of values go to that neighborhood. But then there's something that you just experienced so it's fresh, uh, like you're in a new place. And then there's stuff that just seems kind of random because that's what got lit up tonight. And then during REM sleep, your prefrontal cortex wakes up just a bit. gets a little more active, but not all the way like when you're awake. And what's its job? To build a model of the world. How do human brains build a model of the world? By telling stories. So your prefrontal cortex takes all these random images coming from your memory subsystem and weaves them into a story that makes sense or not, but that mirrors an experience you can accept as happening. So that's sleep. As this happens, you have other brain circuits whose job is to keep your body from responding to motor signals. Because if in your dream you see a snake and you're scared of snakes... It's evolutionarily disadvantageous for you in a sleep state to go running into the woods or in your home into the wall. You can see how organisms that did that got weeded out of the gene pool. (laughs) So several things happen as you wake up. A slowly increasing state of activity in the prefrontal cortex. Some people need a couple cups of coffee to get that going all the way. And a suppression of the parts of the brain that suppress motor activity. Now, this doesn't always work. People with narcolepsy, those suppressing signals turn on at random, especially if they're stressed or laughing. People like me who experience sleep paralysis, which is the opposite of sleepwalking, I wake up fully aware, unable to move or open my eyes. It's a lot of fun. (laughs) I've learned, by the way, that I can scream at the top of my lungs and go, "Mm." (laughs) Mm." and then my poor wife will go, wake up, wake up, it's okay. And then like that, like I'll finally, ah. Which by the way, I'm a deep sleeper. So one night the fire alarm was going off. 
So it made the dogs howl. And my children came in the room screaming because they were scared. And my wife had to shake me awake. <laughs> Deep sleeper. Anyway, so sleep paralysis, that, so you said it's not a smooth process always. That's kind of how we've learned about the sleep state. But you can imagine that your consciousness is uh, several people sitting around a table in a meeting room. Kind of like Inside Out. And you're not awake until enough people show up for the meeting. <laughs> it's, I mean, that's like pretty accurate. I feel good about that. Are extraterrestrials a possibility? And if they are, does that mean or change anything for us as Christians? Yes, extraterrestrials are a possibility. The universe is very, very large. The universe is probably spatially infinite. In physics, we exist, so it's statistically possible for us to exist. And in a spatially infinite universe, dice roll enough again that somewhere else there's life. The universe is so big, it's entirely possible, it's entirely plausible that civilizations grow and wink out with ever finding each other. That's the, that's the downside of a spatially infinite universe. So uh, it comes down to the statistical likelihood of life emerging on a planet in a given region of space to let us know how frequently there should be civilizations. And guess what? We don't understand the situation well enough to estimate. There's something called the Fermi paradox. And the Fermi paradox is effectively, why is the sky so quiet? There should be spaceships everywhere. We should be getting radio signals from all over the place. Why are we seemingly this first species and I'm not going to go over all the solutions to the Fermi Paradox because most of them are super depressing. Now, would that change anything for Christians? Which Christians? Let's acknowledge for a second that there is no universal acceptable definition for what is or is not Christian doctrine. Let's admit for a second that every single Christian on planet Earth is some other Christian's heretic. Show me a Christian that's not, that some other Christian on the planet would not say is a heretic standing in contradiction to the church. Which by the way, if you're Protestant, congratulations, you're in rebellion to Rome. If you're Roman Catholic, congratulations, you were excommunicated by the Orthodox. If you're Orthodox, congratulations, you were excommunicated by the Roman Catholics. So, it depends on what your beliefs are. Would my beliefs be threatened by extraterrestrial life? No way. <laughs> the, the dominant model of understanding Christ's sacrifice on the cross in America certainly is something called penal substitutionary atonement, that basically Christ died for our sins in response to original sin of Adam and Eve, and that without that sacrifice, we can't be with God. So let's assume that's true. Does this alien species sin? Uh, if so, is Jesus sacrificed for them or do they get their own Jesus? Like we don't have enough information to make a meaningful answer. But let's also admit that penal substitutionary atonement is a relatively new idea in the church. The church had an early idea called Christus Victor that the, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross was to signal God's victory over death itself a historically newer idea than an older theology called ransom theory. Ransom theory is that Jesus died to pay a ransom to satisfy Satan effectively in some kind of Vegas side bet with God. <laughs> Christian theology grows and changes over history. And I've reached a point in my faith where I'm comfortable with and accept that. Now other people, they get into a camp on what Jesus' sacrifice meant and they say this is the one belief that's orthodox and by the way, it's always been right and the, the disciples believed it or whatever and that's cool, I just don't think history and anthropology would reinforce that position very well. In the end, I think if we were to encounter an extraterrestrial civilization that was not hostile, if it's hostile, we won't contemplate much for long. <laughs> because, you know, if you have enough energy to move a spaceship between galaxies, your engines will wipe out planets, right? <laughs> if they, there won't be a war of the worlds. There'll just be a, like a pfft and a bunch of dust where our planet was. Um, 
But if we meet a non-hostile alien civilization, I expect some panic, but ultimately a growth and an appreciation for the grandeur of creation. That this is a God so creative, who, who, who is so creative, God cannot help but create. And that instead of a vast, cold universe, there instead is an infinite realm of creation that includes echoes of life throughout it. My, my question is, as a parent, with the ever-increasing access to information and stimuli that kids are exposed to today, is there a change in how we see children's brains developing, and is there a point at which information then becomes detrimental to their development? That's a really good question. Information is neurologically appropriate or not. Criteria one. Criteria two, the means of accessing information is important. When my kids were very young, no screen time. My kids got older, screen time was added in. Not because I think computers are evil or it would warp their brains, but I understood based on research that for young children, they learn the most by playing with physical objects. And the lack of depth on a screen isn't detrimental. It's not as beneficial. And that they learn more by dealing with people who can respond to them than with people who are pre-recorded. This is all necessary for rich neurological development. I also understand, based on research, that very young children can't understand abstractions. You can't explain democracy to a three-year-old. It means nothing. But you can tell a three-year-old about a judge or a president, things with faces. This also, by the way, is why the Old Testament is not a terrible way to introduce people to ideas about God. God tends to have a face in the early creation epics. I think that's really interesting. I don't have a conclusion. I just think it's interesting. So what I've always focused on was what is neurologically and developmentally appropriate, and once they get there, open the gates wide open. In the context of creating a trust-based relationship where my children know they will never be shamed for a question, that we celebrate questions in my home, and we celebrate conversations. Guess what? Young children can't handle ambiguity. So when my kids were really little, this is what I believe. And I knew, unfortunately, they would be the most dogmatic crusaders in humanity about anything dad told them. It's normal. But then they give me signals that they're ready for more because they say, but why? Or do other people? And when they say that, they've just told me they're neurologically ready for me to say, well, other people think this. And then they understand, well, dad thinks this, and that's right. But other people think this, and dad doesn't seem panicked about it, so I just won't be panicked about it. And then eventually they go, wait, dad, how do you know you're right and they're wrong? At that point, I tell them why I think my opinion's good, but then I also tell them why the other people think their opinion is good. And guess what I just did? I help my kids never have or be less likely to have their stack of blocks knocked over because they're already getting the information. So I don't fear information. My kids have computers in their room. They have internet that's filtered. But we also have a ritual about how much time we can spend on those devices and what we can do on them. And they're open to negotiation, right? I really wish I could use the computer more. Well, you're getting all A's, so that's okay with me. Or what if you help mom do more chores than normal, and then you can unlock more time, and so now I'm teaching them. See what I'm doing? I'm never building a fence that they're stuck in. Uh, I'm helping them at a neurologically appropriate level deal with a world where they will encounter more differing stories than other generations ever have because of global communication. My kids seem to do pretty well uh, with that. The best thing you can do for your kids, ultimately, is um, based on research, is read in front of them, read all the time, get them excited about reading, because it just it puts you, people don't read anymore. And I read all the time, so I have no, no degree, but I do pretty well for myself 
because I'm using humanity's most ancient form of knowledge amplification uh, to my advantage. And if you teach your kids to do the same, when you're not around anymore to help them explore the world, they'll have the tools to explore it for themselves. I appreciated your teaching us uh, the model of the brain this morning. I did notice, though, when you went to the neocortical section, you were speaking about agency and will, and then you kind of moved on. The reason I don't like reading a lot of neurobiology or neuroscience is I think a lot of those kinds of scientists are philosophically deterministic. To me, it seems so depressing (laughs) because they really don't address well agency and will. So can you address that from a neurological perspective or what have you to say about agency and will? So when I say agency and will in a brain context, I don't mean free will or not. I mean, the part of your brain that is responsible for your ability to express will is in your prefrontal cortex. How do we know? Science. I won't be that trite. We learned the prefrontal cortex was special because a man was involved in a railroad accident and a metal spike went into his skull and it wiped out his prefrontal cortex. And guess what happened? He lost his ability to control his impulses. He changed. His friends were afraid of him. They said he was animalistic. He uh, started cursing all the time, right? So his ability to bring into line all these different brain functions was impaired. The Texas shooter, University of Texas, climbs up in a tower with a high-powered rifle and starts shooting people after killing his wife, left a note, and he said, I want an autopsy because I felt a growing darkness. They did an autopsy, and guess what they found? Golf ball-sized tumor pressing against his amygdala, the part of the brain responsible for fear and for anger. When neuroscientists assert that some part of the brain does something, they do it because we've seen the results. So... Is the universe deterministic or not? In other words, is free will possible? (laughs) Beats me. What we do know is let's say we have a soul. Let's make that assumption. And that our our consciousness comes from beyond our body. Well, whatever antenna this is, if it gets bent the wrong way, reception gets really bad. So if your prefrontal cortex is affected, you lose your ability to use willpower to make decisions. If your hippocampus is injured, you lose the ability to form memories. That's happened. There was a man who had an injury to his hippocampus and got locked at, I don't know, he was 27, 28. And in his 60s, he would look in the mirror horrified. He didn't know who that was. So that's where we get the idea that brain functions really do map to things. And that's why I tend to say, you are your brain and your brain is you. Because I'm a weird thing, a Christian mystic materialist. (laughs) Those are not words commonly used in conjunction. Uh, But because I study physics and I study neurology, I see the linkage between physical systems and what we call people. And it doesn't wreck my faith. There are people who are materialists who believe in free will, they're called compatibilists. Daniel Dennett, an atheist, is a very prominent compatibilist. You know, other people, it's odd how neuroscientists and Calvinists both tend to agree on free will. I I think it's hilarious. They're both predestination people. Uh, One says God, the other says physics, but either way, it's the same result. So, like, the brain science is the brain science. Uh, So the question is, what do we do with it? And that's why I get really excited because uh, we have an anterior signal cortex responsible for love, compassion, and empathy that grows when we love God. So deterministic or not, I see this not correlation but causation um, that tells me that the gospel not only works in the world but in human brains. All right, so I frequently find myself throughout the months getting deja vu. In fact, had that during your talking, so I'm like, oh... Yes. Good point. I know there's a lot of theories around what causes it. Yes. What is your opinion of uh, the basis of it? Deja vu, as far as I understand it, is you become aware of your memories as they are being written. So your little loop that commits things to memory becomes aware you're committing things to memory so they seem familiar. You're recalling memories as they're made. Oh my gosh, this has already happened. It's so weird. 
Déjà vu. Everybody, thanks for listening. Uh, like I said, I'm going to be all over the country in the near future. I'll be in Texas this week, headed up to Minneapolis, then to Portland, then other places. You can learn all about that by going to AskScienceMike.com slash events. I want to thank Andrew Galucki for doing our pre-production, Greg Nordine for doing our editing, Jeb Botterford has always made our beautiful theme song, and I definitely want to thank the people of the Liminal Conference in Ventura, California for this episode. It has been wonderful. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week.